listening to the Pros and Content Podcast brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform. This episode is part of our data-driven marketing leader series hosted by Notch co-founder and CEO, Anda Gonska. In these interviews, we chat with CMOs, VPs, and others who are ahead of the curve when it comes to both content and data and how they use both to move their businesses forward. We reveal really unique perspectives on the importance and intersection of measurement and content, as well as a ton of fun personal stories and career advice from these incredible leaders. Enjoy. And welcome to the latest episode of the Data Driven CMO podcast. I have here with me Megan, who is the CMO of Lacework. Welcome, Megan. Happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. Love the red jacket. Thank you. I wanted to start, like we always do, with a bit of a personal story. Would love to know what got you into marketing. I graduated MIS Computer Science and started out as an IT engineer. And did that for a few years and thought, you know, I should go back and get my MBA because I wanted to go into leadership position and thought that would serve me well. And in the process of getting my MBA, took some marketing courses and really loved them and decided I would take every single marketing class I could take and graduate and transition out of IT into marketing for tech companies. So I thought I could understand the buyer and the technology. I was comfortable with it. And so I made that pivot during business school. That's so interesting. So you came from the true nerdy side of things and added on the marketing skill set on top. And it sounds like you've been both advising and also working within a lot of really technical businesses like MongoDB. I know you were the CMO there for a while, selling into engineers. That's kind of one of the secrets for the hacking the engineer psychology. It's the same for every company that you work at. Having switched between different buyers and personas is understanding the buyer and the persona. Why they buy, what your ICP is, your ideal customer profile, what they care about. What is their pain, right? What causes them issues and pain and how do you solve that and how do you solve it differently than others? And so with developers, it's we're doing cybersecurity for the cloud. So we think about when you're building your code to deploy it in the cloud, how do you secure it and the pains around that? And how do you detect intrusions and find anomalies? And if you get 100,000 alerts a day, you can't go through all of that. So that's a pain for a lot of security teams. We minimize that by only showing you the alerts that truly matter. And so that's just part of understanding what their pain is and then delivering the messaging and marketing around it. And then how you do it differently. We do it through the amount of data and not rules-based. Rules-based doesn't detect zero-day attacks. And so we're different than others where you have to know the attack to write the rule. Well, we can find it by looking at your data and just seeing the small anomaly in your data. We know something's there. That's interesting. So it's a different approach. How much of how you guys market is kind of art and creative versus science and knowing the pain point and speaking to that pain point? It's definitely a balance because the security market is very fragmented. There's a lot of players. So it's not enough to just understand the pains that everyone is feeling because everyone, if they're smart, is marketing to those pains. So you have to be creative. And part of that is how does your brand different? Where do you find them? How do you put the message out there to lure and to attract them to it? And so that's the fun part of your brand and creativity is doing it differently, whether you show up differently at an event, whether you write content that is just slightly different than what's out there, whether you do a direct mail that gets a door opener, that gets their attention. You don't have to be boring and stodgy. I feel like a lot of the legacy players that we go up against 
they're boring. I don't want to read their emails and I have to because I'm competitive intelligence or whatever, but doesn't mean you can't have fun writing it and getting their attention and still be credible. I'll throw you kind of a a curveball, which is, would you ever do a Super Bowl ad? I would do a Super Bowl ad. We got very close to doing it at Trip Actions, actually, the travel and expense business. I mean, we had agencies, we had concepts, and last minute decided not to do it. And thankfully, because that was uh, February of 2020. And imagine going into COVID as a travel company, if you drop $10 million, that wouldn't have served us well at all. But yes, I've gone very far down the path to do a Super Bowl ad. Do you think it would be lucrative to do for a security business or a B2B business? There's some that do it, right? Yeah. I mean, I I saw one this past year. You know, you have to look at, yes, the eyeballs are there. How are you going to capture their attention? What are your trade-offs? What size are you? I would think more if you're a public company, it might make more sense. But, you know, I'd have to look at what I thought the return would be. Do we have an amazing concept that's going to capture people? What was interesting about Trip Actions, they were such a consumer brand travelers. We were targeting the user. And so it made a lot of sense, not just only companies and CFOs, but the individual traveler. And you could see us as a consumer brand. And now, of course, they have personal travel as well. For lace work, I don't think I would look at doing that this year or even really in the next couple of years, but there certainly are companies that have gone there. If I had a brilliant idea that would get a lot of attention and a bunch of buyers, then yeah, I might change my mind on that. But you got to cut back your budget a bunch of other places if you're going to do that and capture the traffic that comes in. The Super Bowl ad is as much about the ad as it is about the follow-up to it. I don't know why it just isn't there. That's interesting. So you mentioned the word content. Obviously, content is something that we think about a lot. How do you guys think about your content strategy? Yeah, I mean, I think content is one way to build your brand and thought leadership, to educate the market. Think of it as the HubSpot mastered the digital watering hole, right? People are out there looking for information. You know, if you write stuff they're looking for, they start to get to know you. From that standpoint, you can build knowledge for them. HubSpot did it brilliantly for marketers. You would go there to learn about ABM. You'd go there to learn about content marketing. Can you build stuff that will attract the CISO? We're targeting security leaders, CISOs, dev security ops. And then also from an SEO standpoint, what are the terms people are searching on so you can have authority in that domain or those terms? So you definitely want a strategy around the type of content you're creating, how you promote it. Can you get thought leaders to write it? And can you do it in a way that where you can get Uh, relevant, new, fresh content, because you can't just write it and forget it. I feel like if you do blogs, you have to keep them up to date and relevant. You need to write quick and timely, get others to write for you. There's a lot to a content strategy. Do you think of the content as a main mechanism for upper funnel, mid funnel, lower funnel, or all of the above? All of it, right? You want to get greenfield, net new people looking for something. Maybe there's a zero-day threat that's out there or you launch something around composite alerts and they're trying to figure out what that is, right? That would be kind of a fishing lure to bring someone in just to start to learn. But certainly as they're in the funnel, they have questions and they're trying to figure out what you do. And so the content you're putting there, the case studies, they want validation. They want validation that the decision they're making has been done by other customers. Like we have Verifone and Plaid and Shake Shack, one of my favorites. You want to know that others have bought your solution and found success. And what were the use cases they used it for and the proof points? 
And then certainly other objections that you may come up against, maybe the value of it. At the end, the CFO has to sign off on a million dollars, right? Have you shown, hey, actually, this is going to save us $3 million or $10 million. This is going to save us in headcount. Instead of needing 20 InfoSec people, which are impossible to get now, we need three. Right. Mm -hmm. So what's the value and have you given them an easy way to show that value to their economic buyer, the person who has to sign off on the budget? Well, speaking of kind of budget and CFOs, I'm curious how you as a CMO think about your relationship with the CFO and and kind of what are the hardest parts about justifying the marketing spend? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, it's an important relationship. I also feel as a C-level exec, I'm steward of this budget and I do not want burn, right? I want to keep burn down. I only want to spend what we need to drive pipeline and revenue. I need to show ROI or I need to explain how awareness turns into ROI and how we get impressions. I need to be transparent. Sometimes we do stuff that doesn't work. I need to disclose that. And when we do stuff that works and I disclose it, they're more likely to believe me. Mm -hmm. And then I partner really closely with sales and sales leaders. And if they agree the budget's being spent effectively, it's easier to have the conversation with the CFO, right? I've had the CRO go in with me to argue for more budget because the return's there. It is a really important, I think, relationship. And they're asking the right questions. You want them to ask you and your team to show attribution, return on investment, cost to acquire customers, those sort of things, because they also have to answer to the CEO and the board that we're using the budget to our best of our ability. Yeah, I mean, thinking about the ROI, I'm curious, kind of putting the content hat back on. We think a lot about the intersection between content, data, and growth. It's like this triangle. So when you think of content, do you think of it primarily as an efficiency driver? Do you think of it primarily as an ROI and kind of conversion increaser? Or is it just kind of the glue that connects a bunch of tactics? So I see it a few different ways. One, it does drive leads. Like case studies, I wouldn't gate. You should give that away. You should you know, scream your customer's voice everywhere. But if it's maybe a Gartner or a G2 grid, and there's some value there, asking for an email address, I think is a fair exchange or any content that has got certain amount of knowledge. So I see it one, you can measure that for sure. Then two, once someone's in the funnel and you already know them, you don't need to ask for information, but you want to nurture them and educate them. So if you drop them into a sequence of five to eight emails, You can measure if they click through to the content and you can create influence reports, you can track it to campaigns, and you'll start to see different content on your site that gets used over and over by deals that close. At MongoDB, if someone went to the architecture guide or the enterprise pricing guide, we knew right away they were interested in buying our solution and they were serious about it. And it was a good indicator, one, of future customer, but I could show ROI on that piece of content. And so depends where it's showing up. Case studies are just a natural, there's no better way to build trust than to have a customer and their voice talk to how they use the product, the return they're getting, why they love you, and those sort of things. And then the grids, when you get your customers to write reviews, like we have 12 G2 grids, that's good validation that turns content into your sales team. They need good content to lure and to talk to security leaders to say, hey, I can bring you value. 
I've got some interesting information you might need for your job. I can show you how to report on what's happening in your environment and the cloud environment and numbers of breaches that you've blocked and detected. And, you know, I have a way to elevate you with the company and the board, right? CISOs often need our data that we can provide them in the boardroom. So that's a good way to use what we have and dashboards and content for them. So all across the funnel for different areas. Yeah. Do you architect or instrument the journey through content at all? We do on our nurture programs and every sales rep starts to use what's more effective. But yeah, if you're in a nurture track, we're definitely trying to give you the content that's most relevant in your journey at that time. Or if we see you take a certain step, then we're going to send you that. Uh, Let's Mm -hmm. say you're in a buying decision and you need to show... A lot of times you'll have to show that the software is secure or you'll have to show that you're compliant too. So we have those sort of docs that make the buying decision easier and faster. Tell us a bit about how your team is structured. So where does content sit, for example, in relation to growth and brand and where does the data team sit as well? Yeah, so my team's mostly the last three companies where I've been the CMO are functionally aligned. So product marketing team demand gen growth team, systems web operations team, design brand, and then corporate communications PR, and then localized worldwide. What you find is uh, certainly product marketing has content in it. I'll put the people who write the blogs either under corporate marketing or product marketing. If it's a more technical organization, like we're targeting security developers, it may sit in product marketing. It just depends on the leader too, if they know how to lead content and leverage that. Corporate marketing, there's a lot of content there. We'll do a lot of case studies. I've had the customer marketing writer and owner be under corporate marketing, but I've also had it under product marketing. So that depends. And then demand gen, you're always, usually you have messaging brief that you get from product marketing, but you're going to pull from that and write a lot of content for email marketing, for direct mail. And then social media, I tend to put either under brand or corporate marketing, and they're taking all the assets and making them a little more digestible or snackable and putting them out over the social channels. So there's kind of pockets of content in different teams, but no kind of centralized content team that serves everyone. That's right. What I will say is if you're in marketing, you need to write for the most part. Everyone needs to write. Maybe operations can get away with not writing in the web team, but you need to be able to write emails, social, blogs. What I will say, you also need to align around one voice. So you need to have a good messaging brief and doc that everyone aligns to. And then you have to have a review process. What I like to do for review is everyone that's director and above is on an email alias. And no matter what goes externally, it has to have two approvals from that alias. So if you're writing social media, it goes there. And two people just have to write back approved. If you're sending an email out, it goes there. If it's a blog, it goes there, case study. And if you have directors and above, that means brand has a chance to make sure it's on brand and images are right. Product marketing can make sure it's accurate. You've got demand gen with best practices. You have people like ops who check the links and the spellings of name and how it looks. And you have some people who look at it on their phone and some people look at it desktop. You will find a ton of your quality issues by just doing that check to an alias and putting it on the writer and the owner of the piece of content to get those approvals. And what about the data and analytics team? We have a separate organization that does data and analytics outside of marketing that we can go to to pull stuff here at Lacework. At Trip Actions, our head of PR, Kelly, she was phenomenal. She would go to the data team with the questions she wanted to have pulled, and then she would write the stories and then go pitch it 
to the media teams because she knew what they cared about. And she would bring data around travel as it was coming back from COVID. She would show trends. She would talk about where people are traveling. She would get them to pull like right now, everyone's going, they want vacation because we're coming out of COVID. Everyone was going to Hawaii or Mexico. And then when the international routes opened up, she would talk about those sort of things. So if you're lucky, you have someone on your team that knows the questions to ask. And then wherever the data resides, they're going to that team to pull it. Interesting. Makes sense. What do you think is the most pressing issue that's facing CMOs today as we look at the next 12 months? Well, certainly if you're in tech, you're seeing, you know, a squeeze on the budget, right? Companies are downsized a little bit. They're worried about their burn. It's harder to get cash. So you've got to get your burn down and you've got to be hyper-efficient. You should always be those things. By the way, COVID and then the economic environment should not cause these behaviors. They should be happening anyway, but even more so, you're being efficient, you're prioritizing because you can't do it all. Your people, you need to help them prioritize what they're focused on. And if you're going up market or enterprise, make sure you're only focused on the accounts you want to bring to sales right? Your account-based marketing matters a lot, aligning around that and just going after those that matter and really measuring it. Because obviously, if you can't show ROI, you're going to get cut. And then if you have 40 technologies, you're probably paring that down to 30. So understanding and making sure you're getting the most out of every dollar you're spending. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it's in a lot of what we've been hearing from not just tech CMOs, but in particular tech CMOs. Does that mean that there's going to be less investment in brand over the next 12 months? No, I don't think that's the case. I think it depends what your company needs. If your biggest issue is nobody's heard of you, then you're probably going to do different things that are going to get you in front of those buyers that may be more brand oriented, but you certainly have to be able to capture them. So it's a balance. I mean, you want to bring people along. There's different stages of investment and brand, but I don't think you can ignore it. And if you don't do a little brand and you only do demand gen, I think you're governing your ability to scale in the future, right? Mm-hmm. You could do those short-term, get what you need to feed yourself that quarter. But if you're not doing a little bit investment in brand, the next year you're going to get hurt. And the companies that are able to figure out that balance are going to take market share. Makes sense. What about event marketing? Yeah. I mean, now that we're back out there, there's good return on it, but you've got to get the people there and you have to partner closely with sales. I never find event marketing to work well if it's just marketing driving attendance. Sales needs to bring the buyers, their prospects. They need to bring customers and get them there. And I guarantee the chance of them closing that deal goes up dramatically if they get that person there. Just that relationship building. And if your competitors aren't doing it, it's a huge advantage because you start to lose that relationship. Once you've been out with someone, you've broken bread, you've had food, a coffee, a meal, you just have that rapport and you can't get that over Zoom. I think it's hard to close million dollar deals over Zoom. You need to build that relationship and sure, okay, maybe you get it. But now when renewal comes, if your competitor has met with them and starts to build a relationship or all of a sudden has a connection or a new leader comes in, a new CISO comes in, you don't have those relationships, you don't keep on top of it, you're going to lose the deal or you risk losing the deal. So you've got to make that investment. I would say I saw it really clearly with TripActions, COVID, most of our contemporaries and competitors laid off all their marketers, pared back on sales, dropped investment in travel specifically. This is travel, which makes sense. We did take a cut and we cut budget in half, we cut team in half, but we didn't totally stop. 
And we continued to be present. We continued to reach out. We did direct mails. We did a lot of online and content. We took a lot of market share because of it. And while smaller companies were not buying software to travel, larger companies had RFPs that were coming up for renewal. And we went after that in a very hard way. I mean, we hyper-focused. And because we had the marketing team still and the sales team, and we were hungry, we were getting deals. We got Adobe and Heineken and Netflix and these large companies because we still kept some investment in marketing and sales. And so what I would say, even in this environment, don't cut it all the way. I think there's an opportunity to get a competitive advantage if you are focused on, you know, the targets you want to be focused on, you you can catch your competitors off guard. And I think we're doing that right now at Lacework. We are hyper-focused on the market and going after the deals that are there and renewals from our competitors and making sure they know what we're about. That's awesome. I love that attitude, being hungry and being focused. It's exactly what it is about nowadays. This conversation around Zoom made me think of, I think at the beginning of COVID, we were all jumping on the bandwagon of Hopin and all these kind of event platforms. And it made me want to ask you, what do you think is the MarTech that's going to do well over the next 12 months? And what do you think is the MarTech that's not going to do well, especially given all the kind of COVID change in behavior for marketers? I mean, it's a good question. I'm a heavy user of tech. I use, I don't know, we do have over 40 technologies. I think that in this environment, marketing technology gets cut pretty quickly unless you can show ROI. So any tech that you can't prove you're building pipeline with or closing revenue is going to be hard to hold on to. Things that I think matter a lot for us right now, because we have a fragmented space and there's a lot of players, are things like the G2 grids, the analyst reports, and showing your positioning as you're competing for that market share. I think account-based marketing is huge. If you're going to be hyper-focused, the Terminuses of the world, the Sixth Sense, those products matter a ton. I think direct mail, physical things that sit on someone's desk, you're going to open. If I get something, I open it and I look at it. I think that matters a ton. I'm a more in-person events side of it. So I'm less on the virtual events. I got a little sick of them and I have to believe a lot of people are, if you don't have a lot of time, they're great. You can hop on, but I don't know how much people are really paying attention to an all day thing. I think webinars are still great. Webinar technology makes sense. Short snippets make sense. Quick videos, catchy things, social media, all of that. People are still on all those platforms, but I don't know that I want to do an all day virtual event anywhere. But in person, I want to meet people. I want to talk to other CMOs and VPs of marketing. I want to understand what they're using, what are their best practices. So yeah, I think it's going to depend. Website personalization still matters a ton. Companies like Mutiny that are helping us personalize in bulk and optimizing your paid search. Companies like those that are understanding the user behavior on your website, I think matter a ton. You want to continue just to optimize your spend. Mm-hmm. Makes a ton of sense. Well, thank you. This was awesome. I guess my final question is, what other advice do you have for marketers as they're looking at the next 12 months? Yeah, I would say focus on your customers 100%, right? A lot of this focus is on renewals. Don't lose the ones you already have. So the lifecycle marketing is going to matter a ton because it's much harder to get net new. It's much more expensive than to keep them. So write those nurture programs, follow up with them. That's what I'd be focused on on the renewal side. Awesome. Thank you so much, Megan. This was a great conversation. So much wisdom. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. 
Thanks for listening to Data Driven CMO. Take a moment to subscribe so you can drop in on future conversations with CMOs who are ahead of the curve in content and data, using both to move their businesses forward. Learn more how the right data can reveal your organization's true audience journey at Notch.com. That's K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. And thanks for listening.